0: hey true crime friends with me as always is a very special guest I am particularly very excited about this guest. I have creeped on her Instagram for so long now and I love everything she puts out. She is a literal PhD in psychology. She is a mental health influencer. And I mean, for some of you who saw my post and was like, what is the connection? We have very similar names here. So at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, please help me welcome the incredible Dr. Mack of the podcast revealing the Ivory Tower. Welcome, Dr. Mack.
1: Thank you so much for being here. I can't follow that intro. I got so <laughs> hyped up from this. I don't, what do I do with my hands? Thank you for having me. I am, like I said, I'm so excited that you are here.
0: We talked about this earlier, a lot of true crime interest and just a lot of the true crime world really revolves around the psychology of the people who commit these crimes. So to have an actual like PhD clinical psychologist here to talk with is just insane and I love it. I'm ready. So my first question, I mean, I normally ask if, you know, how people got interested in true crime, but I want to know how you got interested in psychology and what kind of made you decide like, oh yeah, this is what I want to do with my life.
1: Sure. So obviously the mental health aspect, what I do now is one spot under the big umbrella of psychology. And so that's what I was, I was interested in the therapy aspect first. So In 2005, on August 29th, the day after my 15th birthday, we got hit with Hurricane Katrina. And where I'm from, it was near New Orleans. And so we got a direct hit. And obviously, unfortunately, we're now used to bigger storms happening more frequently. But at that time, it was unusual. And we didn't have the tech advancements that we have now. So kind of witnessing not just things that I was experiencing personally after the fact, but also collective trauma, these weird shared experiences of trauma and grief that we have in common. And then also everyone has their own unique experiences that they're going through and going through therapy myself during that time, watching a lot of people going through that or struggling. And so I knew I wanted to do therapy, quickly decided, in high school and then early in my undergrad program that I wanted to pursue the, the doctoral route. So there's also a PsyD for people that don't know that. I have a PhD, but there's also a doctorate of psychology. And so that's much more focused on the clinical aspect and also tends to be more expensive. And so if that's your journey, go for it. I went the PhD route because it's incredibly versatile. It's, you can do so many different things with it. There are a lot of things, obviously, I'm not competent to do, but you can make a career pretty much doing whatever you want to do. And I get bored very easily. So that's essentially what led me to this point. And I'm also, speaking of true crime things, my intro to the field actually was as a baby master student doing practicum in Pensacola, Florida in their jail, which is an interesting jail and that's actually the jail that Ted Bundy was first brought into before he was transferred and it is a jail that has many challenges it's not privately owned it is actually owned by the county so a lot of respect there also means they don't have a lot of money that they need so that was my first experience so all the rose colored glasses were taken off met all kinds of people there i've worked in a lot of different settings i'm now in private practice but i do also have that experience of working with people that have committed crimes or accused
0: of committing crimes which to me is so awesome I mean I don't think I've expressed this well I've expressed some of this to listeners I did do some psychology courses in my undergrad like at one point actually my original undergrad started out as a dance major and it's a thank you it's a very competitive field for those who are in it they know and I realized that there were certain aspects of my life that I wanted to have that this life wasn't it wasn't going to make that easy for me so I stepped away from that and at one point I really wanted to do dance therapy because I was like oh let me just marry my love of dance with my love of psychology that I had always had and bring them together of course that didn't pan out it was It was a whole thing. I am where I'm supposed to be. I truly feel that. But that was always one of the things for me was that like I really wanted to delve into the psychology because again, for the therapy aspect of it, not necessarily Mm -hmm. my interest in true crime. Of course, that kind of helped my interest in it. But you know, the, the therapeutic aspect of everything really drove me to that. Now, aside from me, because that's not why we're here, we're here about you. So <laughs> what aspect of psychology that you specifically practice that you enjoy the most?
1: Would you well, say? Again, I like the versatility. I can wear many hats. I, mm-hmm. I do therapy. I also do consult, a lot of consultation. I provide trainings to people in all kinds of settings. I run the social media account for the group practice that I'm in and help with marketing a little bit in our field in the sense of providing education, not gross, grifty marketing, but really how do we get accurate information out there in a way that's compelling and interesting for people because we have to compete against things that are really interesting but not super accurate. So I get to wear all kinds of hats and I love that. But we're talking about therapy work. I tend to specialize more in the complex cases like when we don't know what's going on I'm usually the person that people call or if they're feeling stuck and they're wanting to kind of explore a little bit more because I've worked and I've dabbled so mm-hmm. corrections a lot of different kinds of medical settings with different age groups I I've also worked with college students, community mental health, now private practice. And so a little bit of everything. And I tend to view things with a skeptical lens. And so trying to make sure we're not missing anything is the big piece here. So that tends to be a big one. I also now work with a lot of queer clients, non-monogamy clients, people that have chronic pain, characterological problems or probably what most people would refer to as quote personality disorders things like that that's
0: awesome and so fascinating like I just love hearing you talk about that now you have mentioned in your social media and in your podcast that you have also been a victim of crimes within academia which of course as all my listeners know this that's that's what they're here for, so right? <laughs> the fact that you were so comfortable and willing to talk about it. Cause I mean, I'm never going to be like, oh yeah, I know that about you because of social media. So let's just talk about it. No big deal. <laughs> um, but you were just so willing and so open to talk about it. And I was so glad that you were so open to talk about it. So can you kind of just give us an idea of like, just what happened? What were, what was the situation and what was the outcome?
1: Yes. So answering this question is challenging, not because I'm unwilling to talk about it. I think it needs to be talked about, Mm -hmm. but just because it's really hard to do the long story short version of this because there was the depth of abuse, the aspects that were kind of the headline grabby stuff, which I'll get into. There's also the breadth of it. And so even the pin post, for example, that I have on my Instagram, that's a small fragment of actually what happened. And it was a huge cultural component. And also being in my field, there are added layers here as well. So for context, I had gotten a full master's program, like I referred to, and it was an amazing program, learned a lot, all my professors were amazing, had appropriate boundaries. Then I interviewed for PhD programs because I knew that that was my end goal. If you stop at a master's level, you're a therapist, you're not a psychologist, at least in this particular field of psychology. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed on paper. This PhD program was amazing. They had a strong social justice lens and they said all the right things. Mm-hmm. The writing was really compelling. They said, we use postmodern approaches like intersectional feminism. We really rally and advocate against oppressive systems. And so I'm excited. And they were very excited to have me. They quickly changed their minds about that. I get there and immediately you you feel bamboozled and betrayed because it's not just that this is your average program that's doing cognitive behavioral therapy on kids. And that's what they focus on. It's this particular thing and they're actively engaging in it in a lot of different ways you come in and there's this culture right out of the gate of these really warped boundaries are normal there's a lot of grooming that happens and for a lot of the phd students we had a reference point you know when you're a grad student you do interact with your faculty a little more so it's hard to know there was also a master's program and we had students that were doing They came in with a bachelor's degree and earned their master's along the way to their PhD as well. So they didn't have that reference point. And so they're cultivating these boundaries of, for example, it's normal to talk to your faculty or even your advisor about horrific trauma that you went through so that we can weaponize against you you know weaponize it against you later it's normal for your faculty to add you on social media on all platforms so they can message you at 1 a.m on a Saturday night it's normal for you guys to go out drinking together it's normal for students to live with faculty they're just you're constantly getting yes that did happen not not the living together only happened a couple times but that happened and I had gotten warnings very quickly from students that were in the program of my temporary advisor. You're assigned an advisor when you get in and you could decide if you keep them and they're on their dis- your dissertation committee and in charge of everything basically, as with other graduate programs. And we have another added layer of power because not only do we do a dissertation in my field of psychology, we also have that clinical aspect we have to complete. It's a really unique niche thing in clinical counseling and school psych. So we also have clinical supervisors that are our faculty. And so, and of course they're teaching our courses. So we have to interact with them quite a bit. He immediately started grooming immediately engaged in grooming behavior. It was very subtle and sophisticated. And I picked up on it because again, we're in this unusual spot where this is a psychology program, a program that's psychology and mental health. And i worked in corrections. I trust my judgment and I immediately know what's going on. So there were very subtle things that to start out with. For those of you that don't know, the technical term of grooming is essentially this insidious predatory behavior that escalates over time but the initial goal is to build that trust so it doesn't there's no outright neon red flags for the perfect reference is that netflix documentary abducted in plain sight that is the epitome or anything related to r kelly for example that is grooming. that also happens to adults and so there were subtle things like trying to text me outside of class to see if I would respond, trying to d- inappropriately disclose his own trauma to, so then I feel compelled then and uncomfortable and I need to reciprocate that. And kind of giving this fake sense of, I get to feel empowered as a student by saying, oh, you can choose to leave the door open when we meet or not. It's totally up to you. And then you feel compelled to say, no, 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 I trust you, I'll close the door. So those kinds of things. And then it builds over time. And ultimately, your advisor has control over everything that you do. And it's not like you can switch to another program. This isn't a bachelor's degree. You lose not only your PhD credits, but almost all of your master's credits. And on top of that, you have to explain why you're leaving that program and you have to have letters of recommendation. And for a lot of people, that might be a big source of their income or kind of a way to build that generational wealth that maybe they don't have. So there's that privilege that most people don't have. So all that to say, that was escalating. We also had other faculty that were horrifically abusive in all kinds of ways, making overtly racist comments, transphobic, homophobic comments, the people just, it's almost hilariously ironic, the people that were advocating and researching resilience and trans people, for example, couldn't even use the correct pronouns for the students in the program. So that kind of thing. Also a lot of retaliation, very emotionally reactive. And again, they have a lot of power. And so my cohort specifically, there was a faculty shortage. So we had exposure to the worst faculty. And so the rose color glasses were removed. Very quickly, there were also a lot of HR violations and that type of abuse. So you had to do work after your assistantship was up with that faculty member. They didn't give you enough work when your time was with them and so they'd come back later and try to retroactively get that work from you or they demand that you house it for them without paying you, trying to force you to make sure and students that they get good ratings at the end of the semester and all kinds of stuff so that's why it's tough is there's the depth and also the breadth so i switch advisors ultimately and had mm-hmm. to find a way to do that there was no way to do that in a way that was not going to make him upset because he can't handle rejection and he never let go of that even though i used a legit argument i needed mm-hmm. someone with qual experience qualitative experience he didn't have that Never let that go. I made sure he was not on my dissertation committee. I made sure he was not a supervisor. I did have to take classes with him. And so what we didn't know is when I switched that even though he has a type or a preference that ultimately he would prey on anyone he could get access to. Um, and he had a lot more power over the master students seemingly strategically. Again, they don't know what a graduate program is supposed to be like. And it essentially escalated over time. The other faculty were also repeatedly retaliating. There was a lot of reactivity toward us, a lot of emotional instability, a lot of retaliation. And it got to a point in 2018, I had to take a multicultural class with him. And by this point, he had moved to assaulting students, multiple students by this point. And I had heard about it. And I knew what was going on. And all of us had a tight leash on us. There were costs no matter no matter what happened. Obviously, the cost for his advisees is that he's their advisor. For me, I've Created a cocoon for myself, I still couldn't do a whole lot about it because it's not going to be taken out on me. They're scared of me. It's going to be taken out on my friends that are his advisees and that he does have control. And that goes for all the faculty because by this point, they were not very big fans of me. I was at this point a troublemaker. I was aggressive. I was abrasive because I was not having a lot of it and generally gave off the vibe that I'm angry because most people would be angry in this situation so yeah I took a multicultural class with him while he's very much lecturing about how much he's a feminist and I know what he's doing and I've been through some things in my life and I have to say trying to show some level of restraint I was not perfect with that in that class was really hard because I knew what he was doing but I couldn't let him know that I knew what he was doing Mm. so it was very it ended up having to be very strategic part of the reason that. I will tell this story in more depth on my podcast, actually, is because there are also misconceptions within my own program that I was actually the person that did all of it. And that's not fully what happened. I was the loudest voice. I was not the one that was actually doing a lot of the impactful work. So during that time, he started getting increasingly angry toward me and increasing paranoia engaging in a lot of character assassination, telling students not to associate with me. He would punish them if they did. He tried getting me kicked out of the program, violated FERPA. For those of you that don't know, it's like confidentiality for faculty. So he violated FERPA to my advisor at the time, trying to corner her to kick me out of the program. And I actually confronted him about that and had students stay Good. behind Well, the problem is, there's always easy deniability. And so that's what he would say. I don't know why he thought this would work, but he got really nervous, shuffled around papers, wouldn't make direct eye contact because he was scared of me. And he said, well, I don't know, he's He's baiting me to try to out who told me that. So then he can retaliate, which obviously I'm not gonna do. And unfortunately, one of the students that stayed back with me was one of his advisees. So he retaliated against her later, not in the same way as some others still not great and started increasingly becoming unraveled super brazen by this point because he hadn't gotten in trouble complaints had been filed against him in the past and by time i entered my program there's a lot of learned helplessness because they tried and the more i learned the more i got like a really big systemic understanding of what happened here the other reason i want to tell the story is he got scapegoated absolutely it was the most headline grabby piece He was not the only person that was engaging in this. Again, it was like a, it was cultivated in this culture. So there was a conference in the fall of 2018. I think it was around the fall. I was not there and he just did not care. Was very brazen, was escalating with multiple students. And a lot of the students at this point were reaching their breaking point and pulling back. They would try to push back a little bit or even just maybe not respond as quickly to messages. So then for multiple faculty, including him, it's like, okay, well, if you don't answer a text message, I'm going to Facebook message you or I'm going to Instagram DM you. I'm going to Snapchat message you because he'd gotten smart and to Snapchat. He was very sophisticated in his approach. And and of course, those of you that don't know, if you screenshot something in Snapchat, it lets the sender know right. that you screenshot it, which is why it moved to that. So if you kept distancing yourself, what started happening is he would threaten to kill himself to the students to try to get them to reel them back in, reel them Wait, back he, in.
0: He tried to play like the the abusive ex-boyfriend tactic
1: of, oh, if you don't get back with me, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. Uh, not even that, not even that intimate, it's just, Hey, they're not responding. I've tried to message them a few times. So it's more subtle than that. It's I'm feeling really suicidal. I might kill myself. So then that way you're looped back in. And so at this point, I think he was probably stalking through like phone or internet mostly, but Mm. also in person a little bit up to maybe 10 students and assaulting at least two. Um, And so a couple of us came up with a plan and he was unraveling and already thought I was out to get him and was very paranoid about it. And so here's where I correct this for my program that I essentially said, okay. And one of my friends said, I can't do this anymore. Like I I have to find a way to not meet with him anymore in person. And I said, okay, what if we use that to our advantage? He already thinks I'm gonna report him to Title IX. At the time I didn't I didn't know what Title IX was. I there's not enough education on that. There's no, research already showing not that. At right? all. So I bluffed and I don't like bluffing. And so I said, just drop that. See that I'm the one that's on edge and trying to find out what's going on and snooping. And of course I know what's going on the whole time, but he doesn't know that I know still none of the faculty know, think that I know, even though of course all the students are telling me everything. Yeah. So after he tries to get me kicked out of the program again, um, I still don't know to this day, what he said, I know it's in the police report somewhere, but, um, it got to a point where in Snapchat, it was around the fall. It was right before I proposed my dissertation. It was also when we were applying for internships, which is similar to medical residents and mm-hmm. their matching program they have to go through. i had like five jobs practica that I was doing at the time. And my friend tells me that he had sent her a message through Snapchat And he had made veiled threats before of violence. And I knew that the facade that I saw of him was not the real thing. It was crocodile tears that were very performative or a lot of just grandiosity and really loving to hear himself talk or faking like I'm really concerned about you. I did not know what the actual side of him was. And he showed that to a few students and it's very violent. Um, it's very scary. And the other way that he had control over them is they would witness how he would respond to other people and the threats that he would make to them about other people. So obviously they're thinking, oh my God, he's thinking about doing this to someone else. Obviously he's going to do that to me. He knows where I live. Yeah. You know, He has total control, right? So he started saying that he had money set aside to take care of me. To, to, handle this problem. And so my friend said, what are you talking about? And he said, I'm tired of this. I, I will find someone I can, hi- I will hire someone for $10,000 to kill me, my partner and my family. And so she's telling me this live texting it to me on snapchat and of course again remember it's snapchat you cannot screenshot this and she didn't have another phone around her to you know take a picture of it and mm-hmm. it not alert him. she's terrified and obviously she's the one being more viciously abused by him a lot of these stalking and abuse that happened to me yeah there was quite a bit that happened in my face most of it happened behind my back and at this point i think in his mind he's so desperate because he thinks he's running out of options. All the Mm -hmm. students are backing away from me. He's thinking that I'm the reason for this. So that's what happens. And I had to see him. I had not seen him in person since that class in like a few months before. And it was right after I proposed my dissertation. I walked by his office. I know what he had said to my friend. But again, I can't say that. I wanted to say it. I'm ready to be like, can you, can we like, what's up? Like, what's good? What are we doing? And I can't, but I can't do that. And so then they have, it got so horrific to many students. They had an emergency title night meeting that was off the books. They did not even put on the books. His wife is a Dean or assistant Dean somewhere else. Oh yeah, I know. And so they were worried and so all, and I did not know the extent of the breadth of what was happening. So there were many students in this meeting. The school head that I'm not a fan of either, had also said, you know, I filed a complaint against him when we got hired together in 20, 2009 and it disappeared in Title IX and My advisor was in there. She had come from another university and she said, I got warned before I even came here and then talked about how she got cornered to kick me out of the program. I obviously talked about what just happened. And so he was immediately suspended. We were assigned our own sergeant and I had to be escorted on campus and had to, we had three of us had to file emergency protective orders and in the middle of this of course like internship interviews are happening all these things are happening i'm getting maybe three hours of sleep i'm running to title IX. i i'm going to all these i had to go to the police office on campus we file these complaints and then immediately i'm retaliated against immediately i'm ready to fight everyone I'm like i'm ready to go at this point I'm ready and to fight everyone right now and this is already past yeah so thankfully the title nine group that we met was amazing the past title nine failed at all all of mm. the levels clearly failed. Mm-hmm. so they had lost the file he had had complaints filed against them they were much more subtle but if they had caught them now that they had compiled all of it, there's like a clear story of escalation here because he's a serial predator. This isn't someone that's going to stop or it's like a one-off situation, which can't happen. It's no, this is going to keep happening. And it kept escalating. And also my program was self-policing. And so what they would do is similarly to what I just shared on my spicy Thursday is if you had any complaint against a faculty member, whether it's a grade or something, all the way to racism, abuse, whatever, you meet with a professor in a room with the training director. And and I thought, okay, so I'm sorry, he threatened to kill me and you want me to meet in the room with this man with a training director who has every reason to protect him. So, and it was a weird dynamic with the faculty because it's like the typical, almost like toxic family where they hate mm-hmm. each other. They have dirt on each other and they would use that to capitalize. So for example, if some students would go to him to vent and about another faculty, maybe saying something racist or doing something that was like another type of abuse, they'd go to mm-hmm. him and vent. Or another professor and they would capitalize on that on you can come to me you can talk to me and then that's like used later as like another added layer of exploitation and so now I have this training director who also is very emotionally reactive and probably has some considerable mm-hmm. mental health stuff going on and beyond that is extremely abusive and although she does not like him, has every reason to protect him. And so it would never escalate. Um, I mean, she had instances of calling her advisees or calling students and just impulsively screaming at them. She had a student live with her for a year before I got there and that was her advisee. It was incredibly unhealthy. So Title IX finds out and their legal team is on the phone. And I'm in Title IX and I asked them about how to file the complaint process. We pull out the handbook and it's so clearly written in black and white that they've been viol- violating federal law because there's no difference between obviously if there's a grade issue, yeah, of course you go that route. Mm-hmm. They were funneling everything there. So it becomes this incestuous self-policing thing. So of course it never, it never goes. And then when it did, Title I lost the files. So they found the files and they compiled all of the things, and their legal team on the phone, I heard them. That's how much they were freaking out because they realized the gravity of it. And so I had asked them about other types of abuse or racism or whatever. And they said, you know, they explained the mandatory reporting. No, every time you went from one faculty member to another to vent or if they witnessed it or whatever, they were all supposed to report that. And it took me about three days to process that because. This had been happening for a decade it was actually worse a decade like right when he got hired it was much more of a boys club we have parties where there's lots of alcohol we host hotel parties at conferences We make inappropriate comments like it was much more overt mm-hmm. Now it was a lot more subtle but he had escalated because he was able to and also mm-hmm. probably was increasingly more distressed and unraveling so It was definitely a a cultural piece, multiple levels of failure. He was suspended and it was wild because to bring back the true crime piece, I was working at the jail that he was being brought into and I was supposed (sighs) to work that morning. And so they knew and they called me and I'm an EPO at this point point. they said, don't come in. An added layer is that there was a student from my program that was already in there awaiting mm-hmm. trial for rape. So yes, I know there are lots of components. That's why it's very difficult to tell us in a succinct synth- synth- way. So then they actually suspended two faculty members because of their retaliation. It was, it was wild. It was comments like, oh, he's gonna come back. He's just having a mental health issue oh, I don't even know if we're allowed to hug anymore because of everything going on. Oh my God, I hate it that. Was, oh yeah, it was cornering me in another professor's office and I called Title IX and I was yelling on the phone and it was, it was everything. So they got suspended. As anyone who knows in academia, it is very, very difficult to get someone fired, especially when they're endowed and he was endowed. Mm -hmm. and it was one of the faculty members that was suspended I met with the dean I had all this evidence and I said you do realize you know that there's a lawsuit here right this is pretty pretty obvious and they recognized that so I helped them rewrite the handbook they went through multiple trainings I was the go-to person for the stuff in my program. And I would report to Title IX or try to get the students to do it, feel empowered to at least know. You get to decide what you want to do with it. But I want you to know this is extremely illegal. What they're doing is not okay. Mm -hmm. It's not only not okay, it's literally illegal. And they've had so many trainings about this. And it's the equivalent of us being mandatory reporters for child abuse. It's the same thing. Same thing. There's no... (laughs) So, but, but that culture is so difficult to unlearn. So there was a lot of anger, a lot of rage. The court process dragged out for a while, uh, two years. He dragged it out and that frequently happens. And also there were delays because of COVID too. So it took a while and there were a lot of things legally that were difficult to prove. Because of those, the particular state laws there, and also because a lot of it he was really smart and used things that would have been like Snapchat, for example. So he ended up pleading no contest, fought right till the end to stalking. And like many other states, stalking does not get a long enough sentence, considering Mm -hmm. how how high the recidivism rate is. So he pled no contest to stalking and we also were granted protective orders for five years. So that happened. He was going to be fired and then quit right before they made the decision. He resigned. And the rest of the faculty are still there, even the ones that are extremely abusive. And my friends that were literally assaulted by him have said, even though some of those faculty did not assault them, they were worse. So, all of it kind of coming together, but I take solace in the fact that number one, I'm pretty sure they very much regret allowing me into that program. And (laughs) I was super proud of the students. We had a meeting with the vice president like the provost I think and around that time who was not responding in a super supportive way and I was very proud to see all of these students that were originally very scared not being scared anymore I also cussed her out in that room I haven't reported on my good I was tired of being professional even though I was constantly called unprofessional and so there were yeah there were a lot of things that happened in this program and a lot of weird, true crime things that happened. HR had to get involved. Pretty much every office had to get involved here. And there you go. Those are basically the the headlines of it.
0: And I mean, that that's partially why I wanted to start this podcast because A, I was like, The age group of individuals who die like to me like and I'm not trying to grade or say that you know any sort of death hurts worse than others it's just in my mind I go okay an old person has lived their life you know a child doesn't have enough experience to know what they're missing. Whereas someone in the college area, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of, you know, promise for the future and for that to be stripped away, whether it's because of some sort of assault against them or a death, you know, that's, you know, an extremely tragic and traumatic thing. And that's why I wanted to focus on that age group specifically, but also because of the crimes that are committed within these institutions that no one wants to talk about, mm. you know, everyone, you know, I mean, it's, and I hate to even reference this, you know, enjoy your porn, how you will, but like everyone sees the stereotype as like a porn situation, you know, the teacher and student dynamic. And a lot of people don't realize that from the get-go, that's an un- consensual relationship whether both parties are willing or not it's just not and because of the power dynamics at play and like you said the retaliation and I feel like a lot of people don't realize how much retaliation occurs in colleges and in academia at large and it's just so insane to me because people look at it as if these are two consenting adults when in reality they don't understand how the powers that be play into all of this and like I know the audience like you know my listeners they didn't see I mean the Patreon people they'll see it but like you'll have seen my reactions to some of these things even though I've been silent (laughs) yeah like wild it's 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 never it's never okay for these relationships to happen and I think like I said a lot of people think that it's okay because you go oh I'm a consenting adult they're a consenting adult it's almost like if you're sleeping with your boss and I feel like again people don't really understand that there's a power dynamic at play but it's more obvious I think and because it involves being paid you know, that people look at it differently. Whereas in an academic or an academia situation, they kind of were like, oh, it's fine. No big deal. You know, whatever it's, it's something people do, but it's like, no, these
1: are literal crimes that are being committed. Yeah. It's everything that you said. It's just the, Sheer rage of I actually didn't get a chance to really process the trauma while I was in it because I was so angry and I coped really just by viewing it as I'm watching this happen to people that I know, which isn't a lie. It was part of it. That's how I got through. It. And so I was willing to be the distraction, if you will. So mm-hmm. pay attention to me. I'm the loudest voice. So you're not paying attention to the students that are scared, but are actually doing brave amount of work behind the scenes going to Mm -hmm. and the other piece is I get way too much blame or too much credit depending on obviously like what side you're on here (laughs) way too much credit from the students even I'm just the loudest person but there's no way that I could have done that on my own and actually for the record I was not the person who called Title IX that was not me they did not know that I was going through my side of things it was all these pockets of people going through the same things, realizing that someone's gonna die here. Like he's going to probably kill someone here. And I live close to campus. It was it was a whole thing. His wife was still working on campus. And, and there are the added layers too about it being this field. So one, we're very mm-hmm. aware of the power differential with clients. All of those faculty acknowledge that and would say, that's absolutely horrific. You can't sleep with your clients because of the power differential, but they will not see it related to the teacher student dynamic and grad student. On top of that, it's, I get to fly under the radar because there's easier deniability. So even though me as someone in this field, I know exactly what you're doing, which in some ways makes it worse. Mm -hmm. And because you've, sucked me in because of the ultimate deception here of what you're representing this program to be which to be fair academia is probably performative like that in general Mm -hmm. that the piece of that was the main messaging that they led with and then you're doing this and that's also how they would bypass it is number so you're overriding that a lot of students talked about overriding that in the mind of I'm picking up on some red flags here, but number one, I don't know what they are. They're not easily identifiable because they're so subtle. So, and I'm trying to be fair. Our job is to take a step back and always wonder what mess of mine am I bringing into the picture? On top of that, it's a lot of times, not all the time, but particularly women students who are taught to like override that piece. And then on top of that, it's they can't possibly be like that. They're psychologists. They preach this thing. They couldn't possibly be doing the behavior they the very thing that they argue against in every research article and every class when they are almost like verbally masturbating to themselves as they're talking because they just love what they're talking about and they love themselves while they're talking about it. All of that they can't possibly be a psychologist if they do that and so that truth default theory comes into play of i'm expecting this gigantic neon sign and there's that added layer behind that too of like mm-hmm. easier deniability and then i can go back and say of course i'm not doing that you not, did you not hear what I talked about class yesterday? Did you not see what my literature is on the the gaslighting piece? Mm -hmm. And I use that word very sparingly, but the gaslighting piece, a hundred percent. And so, yeah, absolutely. Just a lot of that, that loss. And on top of that, a ton of incompetence. And I feel like pick one or the other, not both. It's unfair to have an abusive program. And then also many of the faculty being incredibly incompetent. And so not only is this environment distracting me because of the abuse, I'm also not getting what I need because they don't really know what they're doing. And they love hearing themselves talk. So that's a lot of the classes is just unstructured them talking about themselves. And so I have to like go out and get the extra training. And the students are teaching themselves The students are running the programs as often as the case in academia. So, yeah, a lot lot of layers there. And so, yeah, for sure, my handle, the reason I created the podcast, 100% is like science communication, breaking things down, trying to hold space for academia as a whole and the discrepancies there, and then also people spreading this information. But also, 100%, part of it was, I knew we're going to have to tell a story. And there's no better handle than that.
2: Hmm.
0: yeah i mean i am so frustrated just like thinking about all of this like i don't know who i need to write to but like <laughs> i'm about to write to everyone because this is like and again because and i feel like it goes so like swept under the rug is because of the age mm-hmm. because they go it's adults amongst yeah. adults they'll figure it out themselves type the of the thing yeah. yeah. If you're an adult, you can't be groomed. That only happens to children. Well, yeah. And it's like, no, no, this is still very much a teaching environment. And like you said, it's very sinister in particularly in that field, because you know exactly how to subtly like kind of give out these red flags, but also like make it be not so overt. Whereas, you know, anyone who isn't in psychology wouldn't know how to hide that. And it makes me so angry. Like, in general, it makes me angry to think that anyone would want to take advantage and abuse someone just because they can, but especially so when it's in a learning environment. Because again, it's like, as a student, you're paying tuition to be here, to learn, to, you know, essentially make your career, you know, everything that you need to know for what future career that you want is supposed to be in this institution. And when the institution doesn't give a shit about what's happening to you or is letting these things happen, how are
1: you supposed to, as an individual, cope with that? Oh. We definitely, I don't think any of us, I don't think any of us came out unscathed or copal. I don't, like you said, can't even, it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you're a therapist or a psychologist or whatever, you you can't. Mm -hmm. And it's been amazing seeing everyone leave. And cause that would be told to us every time by the cohort above us is they go on internships. That means they're, they're still technically in the program, but they're out of sight. That's away from, they don't have any classes. They don't really have much interaction. So they finally get that separation and every time they're like, "This is amazing! I get to heal. I get to learn things." And you don't, you can't fathom it until you get into it. And so, seeing all the people thriving is—I, I, I just—I get a soft spot. And I do not normally show like that's—I could. There was no space for me to show that soft spot in that program, but mm-hmm. I do feel just that tenderness and affection toward anyone because they're the most resilient people ever. And actually, for me, the healing. Uh, it's still ongoing because it was I had to acknowledge that it wasn't just happening to people that I know, like I had to experience it and I had to let go of the anger because that means I have to acknowledge the effect that they had on me. And I was not ready to acknowledge that they even impacted me at all. And it's just been amazing seeing people heal. And so it is absolutely infuriating, of course, a hundred percent. And it's amazing that all the students got through this and there have been these incredible little moments of pushback like that moment with the vice president there was also the day in court the first protective order hearing that you cannot miss or it's thrown out it's before it's been set um this is just the emergency protective order part and it was the day that my partner had been gone for a year to Turkey and it was the day he was supposed to come back and I could not go get him from the airport. And I had not seen him in 13 months and I had to be at this court date because of this guy. And I just, I remember we had an advocate sitting on the outside of our little pew bench thing in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And I turned around and I'm sitting on the outermost side that I could, because I'm going to protect, I'm going to protect them and the other students. And I remember turning around and I, I just, I, I don't remember what face I gave, but I know that I channeled every atom of rage in my face when I turned around because all of it, and because my internship letter suffered, I didn't get a lot of sites because this had, this was more important. This had to take precedence. And now I'm having to miss picking up my partner that I hadn't seen in 13 months because I have to be here at this damn hearing for this guy. So I turn around and I don't know what face I gave, but I know it was a big one because he literally got up and walked out and would not come back in until it was his time to go. And that was like a very satisfying moment for me. So there are definitely these moments and the students are absolutely thriving. And I would accept Everything, even with the faculty still being there, if the program like if they truly grew, I know that they haven't, but they have got more variety and new professors. So that piece at least breaks up the old culture that was in place. Mm -hmm. So it's still a work in progress, but overall, very proud of the students and just what they've overcome. I I can't, I can't, I can't complain. I like, Mm -hmm. I didn't have to experience what a lot of them did. I mean, and even
0: though you didn't experience a lot of what they did, I feel like you should also be very proud of yourself for being the loud mouth that helped. I mean, if I was one of these students and I saw that someone was being a loud mouth, that would give me the courage. I mean, I'm not going to speak for those people, but I feel like to some level, knowing that there was someone who was going to say something probably gave them hope. And gave them enough courage to say something. And I know, obviously, I also commend these people. I'm not trying to make light. You know, they are absolutely incredible. But I also don't want you to discount your role in this. Because I feel like you you really did help in some ways. You probably helped more than you realize. Because sometimes you just need a loud mouth to know that, like, okay, all right. If this person's saying that this isn't okay, then I can feel comfortable to come out with my story and what happened to me. So I think you should give yourself a little bit more credit for that, <laughs> more well, than you're giving thank right you. now.
1: So <laughs> I think I mean everyone played the role, and I think that's another piece too. Is anytime you're facing this huge systemic block there, because again, he was just the scapegoat. The dean, who was my dissertation chair. I thankfully didn't have to interact with a lot he stepped down as the hmm. dean because he was part of it um hmm. and he also used to engage in a lot of really gross behavior so and he's still there and so everyone played their role you need multiple people you need the behind the scenes people you need the people that are willing to give people the benefit of the doubt i will tag team with a lot of creators for example on instagram combating misinformation There are a lot of people that are going to give the benefit of the doubt and say you know, good faith interpretations of, okay, maybe we're misinformed and da da da. da. And if I could, you don't want to see me because that means that we've gotten to a point where we have no other options, and I'm going to be loud about it, and we're going to do what we need to do. <laughs> and so I think that that's a big piece is a hundred percent, yes, I was very loud. I was not a favorite among the faculty whatsoever. I know they immediately regretted, admitting me into that program. And yes, they did get some confidence in speaking out. And yes, there were a lot of students that in their own way, they, they participated because I had burned bridges with the faculty. So I didn't know always what they were saying about me or what they were doing to other students. I was like the go-to person who like kind of collected all the things and put it together. So the faculty would, talk about other students to other students again, like really appropriate boundaries. And so then that would, we would kind of compile all this information and it gave us an idea of where their emotional stability was, depending on what they were saying. And so kind of getting that intel, I guess, for lack of a better word or insight helped us kind of navigate, what do we do next? How do we approach a situation? So it was absolutely a team effort for everyone out there that's navigating really difficult cultures and there are multiple levels at play and it seems like a, a hurdle to overcome. You need all different kinds of people and tackling it from all angles kind of at the same time. And I sound like this was very strategic and we knew exactly what we were doing. We kind of figured it out along the way, but reflecting on it, I'm thinking, yeah, okay, we did. We tag teams. Everyone's different strengths kind of came together and we did the thing. And we tried to kind of mimic that in other settings too. So, so yes, it is absolutely a wild story. And he was the scapegoat. He was the, he was the one that, and that's what immediately happened when he got arrested was they freaked out. Homeostasis is now disrupted, even though it's Mm -hmm. very unhealthy in general, and they're immediately going to try to distance themselves from him. And so he, oh, he's the problem. He was like a lone wolf. like that's happening. and absolutely absolutely
0: yeah it's never just one lone wolf especially in institutions like academia there's always you know yeah it may be one person who's doing the quote unquote crimes but they're you know the other people who are bystand not even bystanders but just letting it happen people in positions of power yeah. who let these things get swept under the rug because reputation or image or whatever, you know, what have you was more important than calling out this person or calling out that injustice. And, and again, I feel like that is something, I mean, obviously it's not exclusive to academia, but I feel like it happens more often in academia. And Again, I think a lot of it has to do with the power imbalance and students feeling like, well, if this is what I need to do to graduate and get through, then I'm going to do it. But that's not a fair position to put students in. That's not a fair no. position to put anyone in, mm-hmm. regardless Absolutely. of what it's for. You know, if yeah. you wouldn't do it for a job, you should definitely not do it for college. No matter how high of a level you put it in your
1: head, like that's, it's not acceptable. Yeah. And you bring up a good point that it's not excusable from other faculty. So that was some things that we heard too, especially by one of, uh, one of his friends, uh, who also ran the master's program and was also very abusive, just not in the same way, doesn't detract from the severity of the abuse. and in a more exploitative way with, with regard to labor, with regard to, I will not respond to your messages when you need me to for academic reasons, for deadlines, unless you answer every single text within five minutes immediately. I demand this to be all about me. And so when he got arrested, obviously that destabilized things. And so people that were already not super stable, were way more unstable. And so I remember hearing that she had made it all about her, that she was so betrayed, that she was groomed by him. And I even heard graduates from our program who did not experience what we did, kind of saying, well, you know, they didn't know the extent to what it was. He bamboozled them, da da. And I'm thinking to some extent, maybe that's true. There's still no excuse. They're still not, he was doing things right in front of her face. He was texting my friend constantly right in front of her face. She knew that, but she thought that that was normal because she's also texting students constantly. It's just not for sexual reasons, sexually predatory reasons. And so that happening and just kind of making the excuse. And also they, they had dirt on each other. That was the other thing is if they would go against each other, there are some consequences. So even though they didn't, maybe one person wasn't a dean over another person, they had the ability to, for example, one person had the ability to assign classes. So if you went against the person assigning classes, they could assign you the worst ones, or that advisor who assigned advisees to people could just choose not to give you any advisees or too many advisees, like those kinds of things. And while I can understand that that makes your life uncomfortable, not comparable, not comparable at all. There's no excuse. And you actively made a choice, right? You actively made a choice to, you didn't go to the media, you did not try everything that you possibly could do. So then that meant we had to try everything that we possibly could do and risk quite literally our lives to do
2: that. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and I mean, again, it's like, I feel like
0: these colleges and universities, they preach like, oh yeah, we're gonna protect you. It's no big deal. But they're really just after protecting their own, because let's face it, students come and go. They're teachers, they're faculty. That's what's making them their money. It's not the students that are paying. It's the faculty that's being kept on as instructors to, you know, quote unquote, mold these young minds and help them into their careers. Yeah, And it's just like, <laughs> but it's also like, you know, you can't allow, you know, in theory, in a perfect world, you can't allow for someone so toxic and so abusive to be put in charge of molding and helping further the careers of other people. But yet they're like, oh, yeah, no, no, we're, no, we're just, it's almost like to me anyway. From some of the cases that I've studied, it almost feels like the higher ups in academia like to be so removed from the faculty, like that they like yeah. to be like, Oh, well, it's just them, and act as if they had no role and that their knowledge of what was happening had no effect <laughs> over the outcomes of some of these
1: students' livelihoods. A hundred percent. It's just like the thing that I shared yesterday at Washington University Med and hypnists who. Wasn't the person that actually abused the student, but was the person that was like, I'll take care of it and didn't actually report it and didn't do anything. I mean, yes, got rid of the student. The student got to resign though. He didn't give them a, a recommendation letter, but we don't know where that student is. And you know, so yeah, for sure, those layers. And mm-hmm. I think it's because, you know, anytime you're in some group, it if some if someone does something and Deep down, you're worried that there might be similarities there. So like you said, you're going to create as much emotional distance as you can, because the possibility that there's any similarity between yourself and that person now that they've been caught or what things are coming to light is too much to bear. So I'm going to avoid it. However, I can avoid that. Mm hmm. Absolutely.
0: I mean, first of all, I just want to thank you for sharing your story. Dr. Mack, thank you so much for being here. This was so much fun. I feel like I have like 50 other questions that I could totally <laughs> ask you, but like, we're not going to have time for that. So, <laughs> I definitely want to have you back. You are Perfect. such a wealth of knowledge and just a pleasure to talk to. I completely thank enjoyed you. this conversation. Can you let my listeners know where they can find you?
1: Yes. No, I had so much fun. Also, can refer some actual forensic psychologists your way and they would be happy to nerd out on some of this for sure. And my handle on pretty much all my social media stuff is revealing the ivory tower podcast or revealing the ivory tower. Definitely on Instagram is revealing the ivory tower pod. So Check me out. Obviously, similar names here, similar goals. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Again, this was so great. I yeah. am loving this. Thank you.
0: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hate your crime friends. If you're like me, you love personalized merch and you love shopping local. So here is one of my favorite local vendors to buy from. It's Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It. My friend Mandy makes the most incredible personalized crochet goods and decor for your home. Spooky season is coming up. She has some of the coolest halloween designs so go follow her on social media on facebook and instagram at mandy made it again that's m-a-n-d-e-e made it and place your order with her today hey there i'm jules i'm lisa I'm Matt. And we are the hosts of Eye for an Eye
1: podcast.
0: Each week we share a true crime case that truly fascinates us and discuss whether or not Eye for an Eye was met.
1: Does the punishment fit the crime? Was it too harsh? Too lenient? Tune in every Monday to hear our thoughts and make sure to follow us on social media to join the discussion.
0: You can find Eye for an Eye on all listening platforms by searching Eye for an Eye podcast.
1: We hope to see you there.
0: Hey, true crime friends i hope you enjoyed this week's episode of true crime and academia i mean dr mac of revealing the ivory tower is just incredible don't forget to follow true crime and academia on social media at true crime and academia on instagram and TikTok, and at tc in academia on twitter if you would like to access the video version and also a little game-slash-questionnaire we had at the end of this episode, which I know some of you are probably upset that you didn't get to hear. Go to patreoncom slash room and you can access the entire interview that we just had, including this little questionnaire. I actually sat down with Dr. Mac, and I gave her a list of of serial killers or killers and asked her to give her professional opinion on what their diagnoses would be. So again, if you want to check that out, go to patreon.com slash boiler and become a subscriber today. And until next time, my darlings, I hope you all say stay, the I hope you all say, stay safe, stay healthy. I hope you are all hashtag thriving. And until next time, I will see you later.
2: Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room audience. It is Andrew Rimby, the director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to our winter season. And are you trying to stay warm this season? Well, guess what? We have the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. It is our Patreon where there is so much bonus content. So I'll go over all that. But... First, it's only $5, which is less than a latte, a cappuccino, a coffee, a tea, basically anything now because, you know, we have some inflation going on. So join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. What do you get? You get Gregory Maguire giving us all the scoop on the Wicked Movie musical. You get Jesse Green giving us his hot takes on the Broadway musical If you don't know who Jesse is, well, you should because he's the chief theater critic of the New York Times. You get all the JFK and Marilyn Monroe scoop from Elizabeth Winder, a Marilyn Monroe biographer, so much more. You get all our video interviews. You can see everything, including the bonus content. And Mary's going to tell you from True Crime and Academia what you get later. But if you're not following us on social media and seeing our video teasers, well, you need that to stay, you know, nice and energized on these winter days. So follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. While it's still here, why don't you follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's my chief contributor, Mary. Hey, True Crime friends and
0: Ivory Tower Boiler Room friends. Like Andrew said, you're going to get access to all of this bonus content. That includes True Crime and Academia. So not only will you have access to the bonus episode each month, you will also have video access to the interviews that I conduct on my podcast once a month. You get all of that extra content at your fingertips whenever you feel like watching it. Literally for a cup of coffee. So why don't you just buy us one? That'd be so nice. We would appreciate that because we love your support already, but
2: we could use a little bit more if you don't. Oh, yes, we could. And also, hey, do you all know you can actually DM us questions at our social media channels? Yes. Also, why don't you ask us questions with our social media posts? We love it. We even shout out questions on our episodes. And if you want, you can always email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com to actually order our merchandise. So Mm -hmm. we have hats, we have t-shirts, we have posters, we have everything. If you want any merchandise with the ivory tower boiler room logo, we're going to make it happen for you. Okay. On that note, happy winter season, everyone. Happy winter.